Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. We have a, a big job ahead of us this morning. We are finishing our series in the book of Judges. And this morning, we are going to take a summary look at the contents of the last three chapters in the book, which is a really big feat to try and accomplish. The chapters aren't short, they're long. We aren't going to read all of them, but I will read one, and then we will do some summarizing to sort of give us a view of how this book ends. And this book ends with tragedy. If you've ever read Judges, you know that if it was a, if it was a, set on its own as a classical work, it would fall under that genre of tragedy. So we're going to summarize the book and go through the end of the story, and then I would like to speak for you, to you rather, for a few moments about the idea of tragedy and the idea of glory. And that's how we'll close this morning. Remember last week I warned that this book had a turbulent ending. The last five chapters that close out the book have two conclusion stories highlighting the pitiful, horrible condition that the state of Israel was in at this point in time. Last week we looked at 17 and 18, and in those chapters it was depicted for us a society that was very religious externally, a society that cared a whole lot about how they were viewed and the things that they did that would be seen by other people and, and, and the reputation that they would gain externally. This week's conclusion story does not try to sugarcoat anything like last week's story did. This week's story puts all the nastiness and horror right on the surface. It, it wears it right on the sleeve. It is a jarring ending to an uneasy book, but it is not without purpose. Chapters 20 and 21 are set off by the events that happen in chapter 19. There's really no way of giving a, a good picture of how this book ends without addressing at least some of all of these chapters because they're so interwoven. It is one story. It, is, uh, it has one set of characters. And so we're going to read chapter 19 together, and then we will, I'll read a, a bit from the other portions later. So I'd ask if you'd stand with me, please. We're going to get right into it. We're going to read chapter 19. If you have a Bible, open it to Judges chapter 19. This is the word of the Lord. Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him, and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in, uh, in Judah, and, there was a, uh, and was there for a period of four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him his servant and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. Now on the fourth day, they got up early in the morning, and he prepared to go. And the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Sustain yourself with a piece of bread, and afterward you may go. 
So both of them sat down and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Please be willing to spend the night and let your heart be merry. Then the man arose to go, but his father-in-law urged him so that he spent the night there again. On the fifth day, he arose to go early in the morning. And the girl's father said, Please sustain yourself and wait until afternoon. So both of them ate. When the man arose to go along with his concubine and servant, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold now, the day has drawn to a close. Please spend the night. Lo, the day is coming to an end. Spend the night here, that your heart may be merry. Then tomorrow you may arise early for your journey, so that you may go home. But the man was not willing to spend the night. So he arose and departed and came to a place called Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. And there were with him a pair of saddled, saddled donkeys. His concubine also was with him. When they entered near Jebus, the day was almost gone, and the servant said to his master, Please come, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. However, his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners, who are not the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Geba. Now remember here at this point that the reason that the Jebusites lived here at all was because of the failure of the sons of Benjamin to drive them out way back in chapter 1. So this is, this is what happens when we fail early on to obey. Okay, verse 13. He, the Levite, said to his servant, Come and let us approach one of these places, and we'll spend the night in Geba or Ramah. So they passed along and went their way, and the sun set on them near Geba, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Geba. When they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Then behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. Now the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Geba. But the men of the place were Benjamites. He lifted up his eyes, and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? He said to him, We're passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I am from there. And I went to Bethlehem in Judah, but I am now going to my house, and no man will take me into his house. Yet there is both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and also bread and wine for me, your maidservant, and the young man who is with your servants. There is no lack of anything. The old man said, Peace to you. Only let me take care of all your needs, however. Do not spend the night in the open square. So he took him into his house and gave, him and his don- and gave the donkey's father, rather, and washed their feet and ate and drank. While they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding on the door, and they spoke to the owner of the house and the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we might have relations with him. Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not commit this act of folly. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out to you so that you may ravish them and do, whatever, and do to them whatever you wish. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them, and they raped her and abused her all night until morning. Then let her go at the approach of dawn. As the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, 
Then behold, his concubine was lying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up and let us go. But there was no answer. Then he placed her on the donkey and the man arose and went to his home. When he entered his house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her in 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. All who saw it said, nothing like this has ever happened or has been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Please be seated. Let's pray. O Lord, give us strength and humility to look at a passage such as this and to not be blinded by our own pride to the ways in which you desire to speak to us. Father, what a horrible tragedy, what gross sin. And yet, we know that all sin is common among men and that it is our sin, along with this Levite and those men that put Christ on the cross. And so we pray that we would be humble before you and that we would hear from you through the power of your Holy Spirit. Equip my words for the preaching of your word. Give us soft hearts to its truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we think about the chapter that I've just read, it is very important that we notice that sin builds on sin, builds on sin. One thing leads to another. There are not just isolated incidents of sin and wickedness in this chapter. There all in in building blocks, then they they grow. Think about the chapter that we've just read together. What have we read? Well, we've read that uh, I want to just highlight some of these things so that we don't just lock in on one or two of the sins and forego sight of all the rest of them. So let's just think about what we've read. The beginning of the chapter, a Levite... A Levite was a, a man that would serve in the temple, in the tabernacle, set apart for that work. A Levite marries a concubine. This is not God's plan. The fact that a man chooses to marry a concubine, to not make her his wife, but to treat her as a concubine, uh, is not what God had commanded for marriage. It was wrong. And his treatment of her in in being with her in that way points to the type of character that will one day turn her over to the men of the city. It's a lack of care. Men were to marry a wife, not to have a concubine. Okay, that's how it starts. We're told in the very beginning that this woman is not pure and totally innocent herself. She's a harlot. She's had an affair. She's run off. Probably was a bad marriage from the very beginning. And it gave her cause, but she chose to run off and be with someone else. And then she abandons her husband. She goes back to live with her father. She doesn't repent. She goes and lives with her dad. 
The Levite doesn't go out. The scripture does say that he goes to speak tenderly to her, but the fact of the matter is he also waits four months until he's decided that he misses her enough or what have you to to pack up his own donkey and to, to go and retrieve his concubine. Now, if we go down further, after he departs from his father-in-law's house and then is, is going back toward his house, notice that when they get to that city of Geba, that there is a, a lack of hospitality that is clearly pointed out by the author. They arrive, they're in the city square, no one takes them in, right? And you'll remember with, when, when Jesus Christ is born, it says there was no room found in the inn. And so Jesus and Mary and, and Joseph are confined to a stall. But, but this is different. It doesn't say that the inn was full, that there was no place available. It just says that no one was willing to take them in. Right? So there's a lack of hospitality. No one greeted them or welcomed them into their home. And hospitality was, was, was representative of what God had, had commanded his people. This is one of the things that was supposed to set Israel apart from the other nations, that they were to welcome in the stranger. Because that's what God has done for us. You'll notice that it wasn't a Benjamite, but it was an Ephraimite who was staying in Geba, who offered his hospitality. It give, gives us the sense that this community of Benjamites had degenerated into the type of people that showed no care or love for other people. And we will see that this is indeed the case in the events that are about to take place shortly. The old man says when they come into his house, peace to you, only let me care for your needs. However, don't spend the night in the open square. What this signifies is that though we're told it was an isolated group to some degree of worthless fellows that come to that man's house, it's generally known that staying out in the city square is not safe. This means that the perversity The wickedness of those worthless fellows had not been checked. It had not been brought to justice. Wherever authority, whatever authority structure might have been in place in this city had not done anything about these worthless fellows. There was no law. There was no justice. There was no safety. So this Ephraimite says, whatever you do, don't stay out in the city square. When the worthless fellows began pounding on the door, demanding that the Levite have sexual relations with them, the Ephraimite begins well, actually. He begins by exhorting them to not act so wickedly. It's an okay start, but then right immediately following that, we get the unbelievable offer that he offers up his own daughter and this concubine to their lusts. Wickedness. When they aren't satisfied with that, it's actually the Levite, notice, who grabs, the text says he seized his concubine and brought her out to them. Horrible, absolutely awful, wicked. Think about how far we've descended from the beginning of this book when, when Othniel, that great, valiant, brave, faithful warrior, was willing to go to battle to win and to protect his wife, Caleb's daughter. What a contrast from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. We have Othniel defending and loving and cherishing. And now we have this Levite, this man who ministered in the temple, 
before the Lord, grabbing his concubine, not even a wife, and thrusting her out to be abused and to be raped by other men. It's unspeakably bad. The man apparently gets a good night of sleep in the house. It says when he awoke the next morning, he gets up and he heads out. He opens the door and he finds his wife laying there with her hands clutched to the threshold. And that sort of thing makes our spines quiver. And all he says is, get up, let's go. But she doesn't move. She's dead. And her death is, lays on the men that abused her that night, but he is also at fault and responsible because God created man to give up his life for the sake of his wife, to lay down his life as Christ laid his own life down, to defend his glory. Woman. The Levite takes her home, but not to give her the respect of a proper burial, not to respect her or her body. Instead, he gets home and he mutilates her body as a shock tactic and sends the parts of her body around to get attention and, as we'll see in future chapters, to solicit vengeance on the Benjamites. This wasn't calling out to God for vengeance. This was, this was a shock tactic to, to bring the other tribes around so that he could, could get them to, to rally against this city. Now, ending here would be bad enough. I said it was a, a turbulent ending. But the story of this Levite uh, and his concubine is shocking and horrible, but the chain of events that continues in chapter 20 and 21 don't get better. Chapter 20 begins, and this is where I'm going to summarize a little bit, because we do need to have a full view of this chapter, of, of these three chapters and the, the story that it's telling. Chapter 20 begins by saying that all the men of Israel, when they receive those parts of that woman's mutilated body, they gathered together at Mizpah and asked the Levite how this horrible thing had taken place. And I'm going to read it. He gives them a very modified version of the story. He doesn't tell them what happened. Exactly. He says in verse 5, I came with my concubine to spend the night in Geba, which belongs to Benjamin. But the men of Geba rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. And I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout the land of Israel's inheritance, for they've committed a lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Now notice what he does. He leaves out the detail that he was the one that gave his concubine, into their hands in order to save himself. He, all he says is, they intended to kill me, but they killed her instead. And then he justifies his mutilation of her body, which was pure evil, and says that it was done, it was, it, he says that, that the reason that he did it was because it's representative of how they've treated him. They've committed a lewd and disgraceful act. All the men of Israel resolved to bring justice to the situation by going up to Geba. They actually give the men of Benjamin a chance to surrender the specific men that committed the crime. That was honorable. But the Benjamites are unwilling. When they hear from the other tribes that they're to surrender the men that did this, they say, mm, not going to happen. They actually double down and start defending that group of worthless fellows. The Benjamites are 
uh, forces are much smaller than all the other tribes. They were outnumbered greatly, and yet they refuse to surrender the perpetrators to them. So civil war ensues. That's what we see in chapter 20. Civil war between the tribes that came into the promised land once united and in defense of each other. 26,000 Benjamites against the other tribes' forces that numbered 400,000 is what we're told. And we read in verse 18 of chapter 20, Now the sons of Israel arose, and they went to Bethel, and inquired of God and said, Who shall go up first against, uh, for us to battle against the sons of Benjamin? Then the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. So the sons of Israel arose in the morning and camped against Geba. The men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin, and the men of Israel arrayed for battle against them at Geba. Now this mirrors the very, very beginning of Judges, chapter 1 again. The Israelites had initially gotten into the promised land and they had asked the Lord, who should go up? You remember that, we talked about that. Who should go up? Both times, then and now, God says that it was the tribe of Judah that should go up. But the tragic thing is what we've already said. Judah is not going up against the Canaanites anymore. 21, uh, 20 chapters, uh, 19 chapters later. 19 short chapters. Judah is not going up against the Canaanites. He's going up against his own countrymen. Just as the Levite dismembered his concubine, Israel is becoming dismembered. Parts are being cut off. Parts of the body are being hacked off figuratively just as the Levite had done. The first two battles against the Israelite tribes and the Benjamites are surprising upsets. Benjamin, though severely outnumbered, 400,000 to 26,000, puts the other tribes to flight and kills over the course of two days 40,000 soldiers. That's 10% of all the other tribes' military force. Get that in your head. 10% in two days, two battles, 26,000 against 400,000. It seems strange that God would allow this to happen, and yet the fact that he does points to a reality that we're going to, to, to say and reinforce a few times this morning, and that is there is no one that is innocent in this battle. Part of the reason I've spent the time highlighting all of the different layers of sin and how things are building, it's not just the big gross sins. There is no innocent side in this battle. Both sides are guilty. One might be fighting for a just cause, but it doesn't mean that they're not guilty before God. After the second defeat from Benjamin, the Israelites go to God and inquire of him and say, "Uh, tell us why this has happened to us and tell us whether or not we will have success. He says that that next time, that third battle, they're going to have success. He's going to give them into his hands. So the next day they set an ambush for their their brothers, the Benjamites, and Benjamites fall for it. And we're told in verse 44 that 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all valiant warriors. The rest returned and fled into the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. But they caught 5,000 of them on the highway. That's the other tribes caught 5,000 Benjamites on the highways and overtook them at Gittim and killed 2,000 of them. So all of Benjamin who fell that day were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All of these valiant warriors. That's almost all of their forces. 
But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon, and they remained at the rock of Rimmon for four months. Then 48, verse 48 of chapter 20, the men of Israel then turned back against the sons of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, both the entire city with the cattle and all that they found. They also set on fire all the cities which they had found. So at the end of it all, if you've been tracking with the math, there are 600 Benjamite males left alive. No one else. Israel has obliterated the entire city. Men, youths, women, children, cattle. Nothing is left. You think about this kind of devastating wipeout, this obliteration of even the children and the women of a city. And Israel didn't even do this to the pagans when God commanded them to. And yet, they do it here to the Benjamites. This is how they're acting towards each other. We enter chapter 21, and at the beginning of chapter 21, the Israelites have now found themselves in a real pickle because they've just obliterated one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And what is Israel without one of the tribes? They've killed all the Benjamite women and children. And yet, there's 600 men that remain, but they've made a rash vow not to let any of their daughters or any of their women marry a Benjamite. This means that essentially the Benjamites would be erased from the tribes of Israel. Because if there's only 600 men left and all of Israel has vowed to not give them a spouse and they weren't to marry outside of Israel, all those 600 men are going to die with no one left in their lineage. You know, are you tracking with me? And so we're told when they realized this, the people came to Bethel and sat there before God until evening and they lifted up their voices and wept because they realized that one of the tribes was going to be wiped out completely. They said, why, O Lord God of Israel, has this come about in Israel? Sort of a funny thing to ask. So that one of the tribes should be missing today from Israel. Why? So after the Israelites had annihilated the women and children... And after they had made a foolish vow before ever consulting of God, they just said, none of us are to do it, we swear. They turn around and they ask God essentially why he's let this happen. They cast off any sense of their own responsibility for the situation at hand. But then, genius strikes and a solution emerges in their minds. They remember another vow that they had made before attacking the Benjamites. They had said that any man who didn't come to help them would be put to death. This hasty vow now comes in handy. It just so happened that no one had come to fight against the Benjamites from the camp of Jabesh Gilead. So the Israelites remember that and they sent 12,000 soldiers against that town and they annihilated again everyone, men, women, cattle, with the exception of 400 virgin daughters that they found. And they took those 400 virgin daughters and brought them back to be spouses for the 600 Benjamites. You you tracking with me? This means that there are still 200 Benjamites, Benjamite males, who do not have a spouse. So the Israelites got to thinking, and they said, well, we've made a vow. We can't give our daughters away, but 
if our daughters are stolen, we didn't give them, did we? So here's what they say. They say to those 200 remaining Benjamites, go and lie in wait in the vineyards and watch. And behold, if the daughters of Shiloh, not our daughters, mind you, right, they send them away to Shiloh. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances, then you shall come out of the vineyards, and each of you shall catch a wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. Essentially, kidnap for yourself a young daughter, a girl, and run away and go back home to your homeland. It shall come about when their fathers or their brothers complain to us that we shall say to them, give them to us voluntarily because we did not take for each man of Benjamin a wife in battle, nor did you give them, else you would be guilty of breaking your vow. The sons of Benjamin did so and took wives according to their number from those who, were, who danced whom they carried away. And they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the cities and lived in them. And the book concludes with these all familiar words now to, to us at, by this point, these familiar words. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So here it is. That's the last three chapters of Judges. The book has come to a close, but it seems much more like a crash on the runway than it does a landing. It is a very unsettling and a tragic end. And one of the reasons that I've spent all the time detailing all the events of the last three chapters is that we must see the extent of the sin that's there. If we were to take a very cursory look or read a few verses, only a few sins would likely stand out to us. The most gnarly, the most grotesque things, the sacrifice of the Levite's concubine, the rape, the dismemberment, maybe perhaps the civil war. The grotesqueness and the bizarreness of these sins does something to us, though, that's not healthy. It, what it does is it tempts us to put a great distance, a lot of space, between ourselves and our time and the state of Israel at the time of the judges. But this is not helpful, nor is it correct. It would be correct to acknowledge that the sins pertaining to the Levite and his concubine on that night when they found themselves in Geba were horrific and terrible. Of course, they were horrific in the Israelites' eyes also. Remember that they said that nothing like this had ever been seen. It was horrific to them too. What happened in chapter 19 was an anomaly. It was a one-off. We've recently, over the, the summer, moved. And our new house comes with all sorts of new challenges that we haven't experienced before. And one of those is um, these big trees that are just completely wrapped in poison ivy. I mean, the, I've never seen poison ivy with a root system this big and invasive. I'm talking roots that go like that, that wrap up the tree, and not just one of them, many of them joining together and just sort of enveloping these large locust trees. And it's very hard when you're standing on the ground to look up into that tree and to recognize where the green is 
from the locust and where the poison ivy is. You see the vines on the ground, but once it gets up into the tree, it just all blends together. And the reason I was thinking about that tree is I was, I was thinking about this passage and I was just thinking that sin has intertwined all of the characters in this book. All of the characters are just completely wrapped and surrounded in sin. And yes, yeah, some are much grosser and more horrific than others, but sin is sin and all sin is an offense against a holy God. All of these characters are just wrapped in it. There is no good side or bad side. Everyone's hands are stained with blood at the end of Judges. And don't miss the forest for the trees here. You and I are both tempted to lock in on the things that seem so perverse and so terrible that we can't ever even imagine them happening, let alone us ever doing them. And to shake our heads in disbelief. But here's the thing. All of the other Israelites did that too. You aren't unique. All of Israel wagged their heads at the horrific scene that had happened that night in Geba. And if we see that and just focus in on that and say, well, that's the end of the book, that right there, that happened to that that poor concubine. And we don't see all the other stuff. We are missing the forest for the trees and we're completely missing the point of the book. The ultimate tragedy, listen, the ultimate tragedy is not what happened to the concubine. The ultimate tragedy is God's condemnation in the statement, in those days, there was no king and everyone did what they wanted to. That is the ultimate tragedy. Do not think that we live in a better day. Do not think that we are different than the men and the women in this story. Do not think that our natures are any better. We aren't. There is nothing new under the sun. All the same things still happen. There is still just rampant objectification of women. It happens all over the place, and it is horrible and evil. There is all over the place an abandonment on men's part, for our duty to care and protect women and those that are weaker. It's all over. Sexual perversion is rampant. These are the ingredients that go into the story, guys. I'm just trying to say, don't look at the story and wag your heads and say, I can't believe it. It offends my mind. I've never thought of such horror. This stuff is, all the ingredients are right here around us. Lies and, and truth-twisting. And the, the, what the Levite does to his, his concubine is absolutely horrible in the way that he dismembers her and dishonors her in that way. And yet we would be remiss, I would be remiss if I didn't say this is exactly what happens in abortion. This is exactly what happens. And it happens every day, 365 days a year. So don't act like this is so, to the extent that we just act aghast, actually what we're saying is we we close our eyes to the reality that it's all around, right? We're sort of self-condemning ourselves. We do what's right in our own eyes. Judges is given to us as a testimony of the depravity, the sinfulness of man, 
and our need for a great Savior, a great judge, a great deliverer. What we have in the book of Judges is actually the darkness of the human condition without God. That's what we have. It's a picture of the human condition without God. Remember, it's not like Israel is acting any worse than all the nations that surround it. Like, don't think, man, Israel is just horrible at this time. They were. But what has God said? God's, God's, uh, has acu- God has accused Israel of not just being worse than the other nations. He said, you're just like the other nations. All right? The problem was not that they were worse. It was that they, there was no difference between them. Israel has just become one with the world and taken on all its pagan idolatries and sin. What we have here is a picture of the human condition without God. And it may be gnarly. You may not like it. But that is the sinfulness of the human heart without God. It is. So I want to ask, why does Judges end in this way? The author purposefully did this. God intentionally inspired this. But this is not the sort of thing that's ever going to make the New York Times bestseller list, is it? Why such an unsettling ending? Why? Well, the past week, I was at a funeral. This past week, I was at a funeral. And the Catholic priest who was presiding over the service said that for thousands of years, when tragedy strikes, the universal response is why. And I would agree with him. But he went on to say that there is no answer to that question. That we would never know why bad things happen. But he's wrong. The answer to why tragedy happens is found in the fact, the very fact, that we are sinners. Tragedy happens because of sin. That is what the scripture teaches. Furthermore, the answer to the why is so that we might be warned about the consequences of sin. No matter if a tragedy is is a direct result of sin or whether it, it, it may, death isn't often a direct result of, well, it is a result of sin, but, you know, there are some tragedies that we sin directly and, and man, we get burned right away. And then there are things that are a result of sin, generally speaking. But all tragedy, whether it's the immediate result of sin or whether it's the, a general result of the fallen nature of the world and man, it points us to the fact that sin has consequences, doesn't it? It also gives us, every time, an opportunity or an occasion to turn to the Lord and to find our strength and salvation in Him. Because tragedy often makes us acknowledge that we have a need that we can't fill. That's how we feel during tragedy. We suddenly realize our own mortality in a way that we didn't beforehand. And we realize that we can't do anything about it. And so it's an opportunity to, to, to Christians and those that don't know the Lord, to call on the Lord, to seek Him, and to find Him. Tragedy always serves to remind us of the frailty and the weakness of our human condition. It reminds us that the things of life that seem so sure, so settled, so certain, are actually quite fleeting and cannot be depended upon. Tragedy reminds us to not live for this life, but to live for eternity. So why does Judges end in such a tragic way? 
It does so to warn us about an ending that is actually much more tragic and troubling than the one we've read about this morning. That's one of its aims. There is an ending that makes the ending of this book pale in comparison. And the ending that I'm referring to is a place called hell. The Bible speaks about hell. And we don't like to think about it and we don't like to talk about it. We also don't like reading passages like we read this morning. It's unsettling. There's a heaviness to it that we don't like, makes us squirm. But the end of Judges, Judges invites us to think about tragic endings. Hell is a literal place. Just like we might like to view the chapters we've read this morning as being figurative or just like that, that, that Levite and his concubine is not actually happening but being symbolic or representative of something, we also would like to think that hell can't possibly be literal. But hell is never presented as something that's figurative. Hell is always talked about as a place of eternal torment. Jesus said that it is a place of endless weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of such pain and suffering that we cannot comprehend it. It's described as a lake of fire where the fire never dies and where worse, you don't die either. But the pain of hell is much worse than simply sticking your hand into a fire and feeling the burn. It is a place where God's wrath is being poured out continually. The pain and suffering of God's wrath is unimaginable. That, the, 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 the crucifixion of Christ, the physical pain he felt, though horrific as it was, was nothing, absolutely nothing, in comparison to the wrath of God being poured out on the perfect lamb. Him saying, why have you forsaken me? The forsakenness of God towards his own son. That is something that cannot be portrayed in any movie. That is what God says hell is. It's his wrath being poured out. Many people acknowledge that hell's real. Even those who don't believe what the Bible teaches have often, I've found, some sense of divine justice when it comes to the extreme sinners, like the Levite, like the men that, that, that raped that concubine. There aren't too many people out there, though, that advocate for Hitler. There aren't many people you'll find that advocate for Hitler to be in heaven. Right? There are a lot of people have a divine, this sense of divine justice when it comes to the most outlandish, worst sinners like Hitler and like the Levite. But here's the thing. It is not just the most grotesque, disgusting sinners that go to hell. Remember, God's problem was not just with the Levite. He had a problem with all those who did what was right in their own eyes who would not have him as their king. It wasn't just the Levite whose life ended in tragedy, but it was all of the other Israelites who lived doing what was right in their own eyes and refused to heed or bend to God's will and his authority. Remember the closing statement. It's not about the Levite and his concubine. It's not about the men of Geba. It was about Israel. In that day, even those who fought against Benjamin, even them, there was no king and everyone did what was right. This is the warning of judges. As we're closing out, this is the warning. If you will not have Christ as your king, if you will not heed his authority in your life, then you will meet an end that is much worse than the one we've read about this morning. That point is obvious if we're willing to consider it. 
The end for those who will not bow to Christ is eternity in a literal hell. That is the ultimate tragedy. That is the ultimate tragedy. And it's tragic because of the pain and the suffering, but it's also even more tragic because Christ has offered something else. He has offered to be your king. He has offered to pay for your sins. And so to forego that is actually the ultimate tragedy. I call on you, if you don't know Christ this morning, to turn from what is doing in your own eyes to a savior, to a king, to the one who all of the judges point toward. When I was young, I liked the write-your-own-adventure stories. You could, if you didn't like one of the endings, you could decide to turn the page and flip to another section and rewrite it. And some of us would really like to do that with judges. We'd like to erase these three chapters and sort of put something else in its place. But we can't. While we can't do that with judges, that is what Jesus does for us. That is what Jesus does for us. While we all deserve a tragic end because of our sins, he offers his salvation. He offers you a different ending, one that turns tragedy into glory for all those that are willing to embrace and welcome his kingship. For as horrific as this story of Judges is, the the glory of a life serving the King of Kings is all the more wonderful. And now I'm contrasting with glory, returning from those that are outside of Christ. Christ gives his subjects freedom from the bondage of our sins. He gives us purpose. He gives us joy. And if you don't know Christ Jesus as your king, if you can't speak of how he's delivered you, call out to him. Seek him. He promises that he will not turn those away that come after him in truth. And if Jesus is your king this morning, recognize that without him, without him, the end of Judges would be representative of all of our lives. It would be bleak, it would be dark, it would be tragic. But, but, and I want to say but, this is not the end. So praise him, obey him, live for him. Let this book cause gratitude and thanksgiving to well up in you. Not because you can't relate to anything in the book, but rather because you see yourself in the stories of the judges and you also see the promise of Christ's salvation and what he's rescued you out of. Remember that apart from the grace of God, there would be, there would be, we would be no different. We are all the Levite. We are the concubine. We are the Samson, the Gideon. We've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have sinned in many ways, and yet, if Christ is your king, if you strive to do what is right in his sight, those are the two things that the book just hinges on again and again and again, then you have, and I have, great cause to rejoice, even at the end of this book. Your life is not to be ended in tragedy, but in glory. This is the point of Hebrews 11, isn't it? Hebrews, that, that great hall of faith that accounts, that gives a, an account of the men and women and judges. It's a list of all those who had, by faith, done great things for God. And it gives honor to men like Gideon, who tested God and said, if you do this, then I'll do this for you. Or, or Jephthah, a man who made a rash vow and actually sacrificed his, his daughter. Or Samson, the man who was driven by his lustful impulses. Almost all of the judges had 
tragedy in their lives that they had caused. But their ending has been rewritten. That's the miraculous thing and the beautiful thing about Hebrews. It should encourage us so much. Their ending had been rewritten by Christ. If we, we see them listed in Hebrews 11 as faithful men and women. Their end was being called faithful by God, and now they serve as a cloud of witnesses to us, calling us to live under the reign of the King of Kings. And this is all because of the work of Jesus Christ. We are all owed tragedy, and yet Christ has shared with us his glory. This is an incredible. This is a great cause to rejoice. What a cause we have for obedience. What a cause we have to gladly submit to his rule in our lives as King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for saving us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. And Lord, many, many times we don't believe those words. And yet when we're confronted with the wretchedness of sin in these chapters, and we remember that it was not just their sin, but ours that that put you on the cross and that separated you from your son, Jesus, uh, from your father, that we recognize that we are wretched too. And yet we have a great Savior who has not given us what we deserve, but has given us his own inheritance, glory. We thank you. May we pursue this glory by faith with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.